turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome back. As we head into our third hour, um, I wanted to think a little bit with you about the beginning of the year that's always been, for me, September, never January. And I don't know why that exactly is, except maybe my affiliation and time spent in institutions of education, learning, higher education, you name it. I guess I've just always been a creature of the academy or a part-time creature of the academy. And uh, September just always seems like that's when things get serious, Um, certainly in an election year. But as we are all starting the school year, the new school year, new polling from Rasmussen. As students return to the classrooms this fall, more than four times as many Americans rate public schools poor as rate them excellent, this poll finds. The latest Rasmussen reports national telephone survey finds that only 8% of American adults rate the performance of public schools in America today as excellent. 8% excellent. 22% rate America's schools as good. 31% rate them as fair. 35% give public schools a poor rating. So many thoughts come with this. First, Who have we turned public schools over to? For far too long, parents, or at least conservative parents, were absent from the scene, assuming the best, assuming schools were about the same as when they were students. When they were awakened by the teaching and curricula, especially in 2020, they, like Rip Van Winkle, were awakened to a world they didn't recognize, to a surprisingly changed world. Teacher quality had changed. Teaching had changed. Subject matter had changed. Pedagogy had changed. The essence of what education in the public schools had changed. Those of us in the education reform movement had been warning for years about the increased money going to education with the flat or decreasing output. As far back as 1983, still one of the best reports on education in America was promulgated by the Department of Education, maybe one of about five good things the department has ever done. And that was, as I say, nearly 40 years ago. The report was called A Nation at Risk. Its opening lines are worthy of repeating and could be written just as much today as they were in 1983. Quote, our nation is at risk. Our once unchallenged preeminence in commerce, industry, science, and technological innovation is being overtaken by competitors throughout the world. This report is concerned with only one of the many causes and dimensions of the problem, but it is the one that undergirds American prosperity, security, and civility. We report to the American people that while we can take justifiable pride in what our schools and colleges have historically accomplished and contributed to the United States and the well-being of its people, the educational foundations of our society are presently being eroded by a rising tide of mediocrity that threatens our very future as a nation and a people. What was unimaginable a generation ago has began to occur. Others are matching and surpassing our educational attainments. Let me go on. Quote, 
If an unfriendly foreign power had attempted to impose on America the mediocre educational performance that exists today, we might well have viewed it as an act of war. As it stands, we have allowed this to happen to ourselves. We have even squandered the gains in student achievement made in the wake of the Sputnik challenge. Moreover, we have dismantled essential support systems which helped make those gains possible. We have, in effect, been committing an act of unthinking, unilateral educational disarmament. Our society and its educational institutions seem to have lost sight of the basic purposes of schooling and of the high expectations and disciplined effort needed to attain them. Close quote. Rising tide of mediocrity. We have allowed this to happen to ourselves. We have committed unilateral disarmament. If those phrases, or that last one particularly, unilateral disarmament, disarmament, uh, finds a special notice today, perhaps it's because it comes with the memories of Mikhail Gorbachev's life when others in America were arguing for the very origin of that analogy, a literal unilateral nuclear freeze to appease the Soviet Union, a unilateral disarmament in geopolitics as much as in our own sovereign abilities. Names attached to that freeze movement are still alive. Perhaps you know them. John Kerry, Joe Biden. In any event, back to education. As a country, we spend nearly $800 billion a year on public elementary education and over $15,000 per pupil. For that, we get scores, outputs that over the years, if you charted a graph, are flat, flat, flat. Today, about one-fifth of our nation's fourth graders attain an F in mathematics. About 30% of our nation's eighth graders attain an F in mathematics. And 40% of our 12th graders attain an F in mathematics. About 34% of our fourth graders attain an F in reading. About 27% of our eighth graders attain an F in reading. And about 30% of our 12th graders attain an F in reading. In U.S. history... About 40% of our 8th graders get an F in the field, while 50% of 12th graders get an F. You notice those trends, and you notice something amazing. The longer you spend in school, the worse you perform relative to what is expected at your grade level. $800 billion is what is getting you this. That last one. U.S. history is my major concern, though illiteracy and mathematical illiteracy should not be forgotten here either, because without those foundations, you cannot assimilate any understanding of history or anything else. Think on that history a moment, though, and ask yourself if the receipts are not already in, showing we have all been shortchanged, unless the task is actually to denigrate or to teach children to hate this country. David McCullough, the great historian who passed away earlier this month, testified to the U.S. Senate on this some years back and got it all exactly right and exactly ignored. A few ex excerpts from his testimony, if I can. David McCullough, quote, I think the problem is essentially that we have been teaching our teachers the wrong way. We have too many teachers who have graduated with degrees in education and they are assigned to teach history or biology or mathematics or English, and they don't know the subject. 
close quote. Before I go any further with his testimony, let's talk about those education schools and education degrees for a moment. One teacher, Daniel Buck, affiliated now with the Fordham Institute, recently wrote his experience in the Wall Street Journal. He writes, I studied, quote, I studied for a master's degree in education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2015. My program was batty. We made Black Lives Matter's friendship bracelets. We passed around a popsicle stick to designate whose turn it was to talk while professors compelled us to discuss our life's traumas. We read poems through the lenses of Marxism and critical race theory in preparation for our students doing the same. Our final projects were acrostic poems or ironic rap videos. Does this sound like graduate school to you? Remember now, we're bailing out people who did this, okay? Let me continue with what he said. Quote, at the time, I figured my experience was unique. Surely, I thought, other teacher prep programs focused on human cognition, behavioral management, child psychology, and other educational practicalities. But alas, my program was mild compared with what current graduates must suffer. The University of Wisconsin River Falls defines education as, quote, social justice and change agency, close quote. The University of Wisconsin Stevens Point commits to anti-racism. Each program exhibits a philosophy of education called critical pedagogy, made popular by Brazilian Marxist Paulo Ferrer, and it envisions schools as places not of not as not of academic instruction, but of societal change. Ferrer, one of the authors assigned most often in schools of education, mapped the oppressor-oppressed dichotomy onto the teacher-student relationship and advocated for what he believed was a liberatory education. He cited the Maoist and Leninist revolutions as his ideals of thought put to action. Where Ferreira shifts from Marxist ramblings to practical advice, he encourages teachers to spur their students toward discontent with the world around them. If there's practical training involved, it's likely to be about how to discuss LGBTQ plus issues with three-year-olds. The same philosophy encourages action civics. Rather than teaching a straightforward history curriculum, educators are expected to encourage their students to advocate social change, close quote. So while other countries teach, actually teach reading, math, and history, we teach how we feel about these things and how we can use them for a socially active red political purpose. We teach how we feel about everything, and we don't train to think. We train to indoctrinate. Back to David McCullough. He put it that, quote, The teacher who doesn't know the subject is up against a big handicap in three ways, and consequently, therefore, the students are. Anybody trying to teach a subject they don't know has got a problem right away. But it is also impossible to love what you don't know, just as as it is impossible to love someone you don't know. And we all know from our experience in school, those of us who were lucky enough to have wonderful teachers, the best teachers were the teachers that were really excited, loved what they were teaching. Their enthusiasm, their affection for for, for what they were teaching was tangible. Close quote. Here's his most haunting statement in that testimony. It was this, quote, David McCullough, quote, If we raise generation after generation of young Americans who are historically illiterate, we are running a terrible risk for this country. You could have amnesia of a society, which is as detrimental as amnesia of an individual, close quote. 
Let me give you something even more haunting. These are public schools we are talking about, which is to say government schools. Your government is doing this to you, your family, and its own country. I'm reminded here of something C.S. Lewis wrote in The Abolition of Man. Quote, the right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate just sentiments. By starving the sensibility of our pupils, we only make them easier prey to the propagandist when he comes. Close quote. Let's make sure we understand that. By keeping our children un- or miseducated, and by miseducating them, we subject them to propaganda they are easily able to buy into. They don't know any better, and they're starving for something strong and specific. Now, hopefully, we understand what the task of education as we have come to know it here in America has become. Oh, and let's take heed, too, of the title of the book of C.S. Lewis's I just mentioned, The Abolition of Man. Focus on that for a moment, The Abolition of Man. The Marxists are hard at work here, and their work is paying off. I usually say, paraphrasing Flannery O'Connor, we have to push as hard against the culture as pushes against us. Looking at the time they've had, the money they have been given, and the results they are producing, I think we now have to push a great deal harder. Something to keep in mind as your children are going back to school. Something to keep in mind as you vote for school board members this year. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. If you're looking for a remarkable investment opportunity with a great return for investors, check out my friends at Y-Refi. They are offering up a fixed no-load interest rate up to 10 and a quarter percent return for investors, all in a secure and collateralized portfolio. Y-Refi is a due diligence proof firm run by really good people. They are investors who do well by doing good for others, and you can be a part of that too. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y.com, or give them a call at 855-316-3087, 855-316-3087. You know, this distortion of history is one thing. This revisionism of history is another And the revision and revisionism of it in real time, of current events, is yet something else again. We talked yesterday uh, with Brandon and others about Mikhail Gorbachev's passing and how all the major media outlets that I saw anyway, CNN, New York Times, Washington Post, were all praising Mikhail Gorbachev in the headlines for being responsible for taking down the Soviet Union, for taking down his own country. There's two things important in, 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 that inhere in, in those stories. One didn't occur to me till just now. The first we talked about yesterday. It's leaving out the person who made him do that. It's, it's leaving out Ronald Reagan. And you, you can't think that's anything but deliberate. Uh, Charles, listener Charles, wrote a letter here. Come here to this gate, Mr. Gorbachev. Open this gate, Mr. Gorbachev. Tear down this wall. Six times this passage was removed from the draft for his, from his most famous speech, Charles writes. Six times President Reagan put it back in. Finally, on the seventh try, it was part of the delivery of the most famous line from his speech. 
at the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin, June 12th, 1987. This was leadership and a president who said what he meant and meant what he said. The 1980s was a time of great leadership in the world. Margaret Thatcher, Lech Walesa, Menachem Begin, Pope John Paul II, second, <laughs> Pope John Paul II, sorry, I know better than that, and of course, Ronald Reagan. The left likes to make fun of one of our greatest presidents. They would often chuckle and refer to a silly movie Reagan made while he was a Hollywood actor. The film was Bedtime for Bonzo. I just wonder how those same leftists are going to explain something silly that unfortunately is not a movie. Bedtime for Biden. Thank you, Charles. Um, yes, all of all of what inheres in that, the elimination of Ronald Reagan from the demise of the Soviet Union is um, revisionism taking place before our very eyes. They were doing it then. We're doing it now. As Brandon reminded us, this country was uh, suffused with what Rush Limbaugh called Gorbasms. Uh, whenever Mikhail Gorba, uh, Gorbachev came to America, he was heralded as the great hero. Far more uh, heralded here than he was in the Soviet Union. But the second point that occurred to me as I was thinking through some of this in respect of the monologue I just gave is think about how critically dangerous it is when a country stops believing in its own cause, when a country stops believing in its own mission. At a certain point, Ronald Reagan understood a few things. He understood it going back to his early days as president, even much earlier than the Brandenburg Gate speech. We quoted some of the 1983 Evil Empire speech where he said the Soviet Union's last pages are being written even as we speak. Mocked for that, but he predicted it. He saw it. He knew that at a certain point, the Soviet Union's economy could not match the engine of the United States economy, the great arsenal of democracy as it was once known. It was about our economy, not actually our weaponry. We could outspend them. We could outspend the Soviet Union in the arms race. He saw technology and technology coming. P.J. O'Rourke in that great essay talks about people in the Eastern Bloc and in the Soviet Union uh, having smuggled, having been smuggled in you know, Walkmans and tapes and speeches, they would tap out lines in the prisons of Gene Kirkpatrick's speeches, which were then making their way through Radio Free Europe into the Soviet Union. Technology was sending a different message to those living in the misery of communism that once there, combined with the continued impoverishing of the country, Ronald Reagan knew would crack the ability of the Soviet people to continue to buy into the great lie that was Soviet Marxism. He knew that. He saw that. A few others did, but not many. Not even a lot of Republicans. And ultimately, the Soviets stopped believing in their system. And it came crumbling down. Big pushes, big efforts from Ronald Reagan. But internally, there was a demise that was part of it as well. And I think that should be instructive for us, too. What happens to a country when it stops believing in itself. Well, fundamental transformation is what happens to a country that stops believing in itself. I'm Seth Leaps and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Hopefully now you understand why I like 80s music a little bit. It was a better era. We could see right and wrong. We weren't subject to the relativism 
that we are right now. Portions of this show, by the way, I should say, speaking of history, are brought to you by Balance of Nature. Why do I say speaking of history? Because they have a great initiative where they're trying to help teach American history to children. That's what makes them a great company. It's a great company that puts out a great product, which is their fruits and veggies. I take them every single day. Balance of Nature's fruits and veggies are 100% pure. I know a strict vegan. He takes balance of nature, 100% pure, just fruits and veggies, a blend of 16 whole fruits, 15 whole vegetables. Take them once a day, and you are good to go. Best product I've ever taken. Keeps my energy, my health, and my immunity up, 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 not flat, flat, flat like our education scores. If you want to access their fruits and veggies, check them out at balanceofnature.com. That's balanceofnature.com, and make sure to use discount code BALANCE. You know, just pertinent or apropos The last point I was making before the break about what happens to a country when it stops believing in itself, Uh, Jean-Francois Ravel was a French philosopher. In the 80s, he wrote a book called How Democracies Perish, and uh, more on point than what I was saying about what happened in the Soviet Union when it stopped believing in its system. His concern was how democracies perish, countries on the Western divide of the Iron Curtain. Jean-Francois Ravel wrote in that book, clearly a civilization, quote, clearly a civilization that feels guilty for everything it is and does will lack the energy and conviction to defend itself, close quote. Worth repeating, clearly a civilization that feels guilty for everything it is and does will lack the energy and conviction to defend itself. How are we not seeing this before our very eyes? You think about the 1619 curriculum. This is not some amorphous thing. This is a huge pedagogical and educational instrument promoted and sold and pushed by the New York Times in thousands of schools now. Thousands of schools. No state is immune. Arizona is not immune. And the lead author of it, the lead uh, author and really inventor of it is discover, not discover, inventor of it. it was her idea, and she is is the lead editor of the 1619 Project, is a journalist named Nicole Hannah-Jones. She's a journalist. She's not a historian. She's a journalist. And fascinating, fascinating story about this young woman who's African-American, Nicole Hannah-Jones. She said in an autobiographical essay, we've talked about this a little bit before, that she grew up with an American flag in her front yard, an American flag that her dad had placed there. Her dad, also African-American, was a veteran of World War II, and he took pride in that flag. And if it became withered or tattered, he would replace it. He put it up according to statute, and he took it down according to statute. Regulation is the better way to put that. And she tells the story that she learned in school that they should not be hoisting that American flag in their front yard. She learned it in school that that American flag did not represent African-Americans. Well, obviously, she learned wrong. But think about the energy and the energumen in our pedagogy that led to that. You have a World War II vet. He fought for this country in this country's uniform against real tyrannies and real fascists and real imperialists and real Nazis. 
and he comes back with pride only to be told by his daughter who learned in school that he was wrong. He was wrong. This says so much. I go back to Jean-Francois Ravel, a civilization that feels guilty for everything it is and does will lack the energy and conviction to defend itself. When Ronald Reagan called the Soviet Union an evil empire, the editorials in this country, the editorial boards, the editorial pages, the op-ed writers went nuts. You can't talk in those kinds of polar absolutes. You can't talk in those kinds of Manichaean rights and wrongs. Yes, you could. The Soviet Union did. Once we did, their epitaph was being written. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. You know, listener uh, Charles, who wrote us that beautiful uh, statement I read in the last segment about um, the Berlin Wall speech, the Brandenburg Gate speech that Ron Reagan gave, he said it was his most famous speech. I, I might quibble a little bit with that. Um, it was one of his most famous lines, but he had many. He had many. And um, his challenger speech, his evil empire speech in 1983, his inaugural speech uh, in 1981. Uh, funny enough, people don't spend a lot of time on his second inaugural, but it's equally good. Uh, and certainly his farewell speech. I want to combine for a moment his evil empire speech, what we're talking about, and his farewell speech. Every president gives a farewell speech from the Oval Office. But in the evil empire speech, uh, we did some of this yesterday. He, um, he had no problem talking about right and wrong, and he had no problem talking about good and evil. He said, while America's military strength is important, let me add here that I've always maintained that the struggle now Going on for the world will never be decided by bombs or rockets, by armies or military might. The real crisis we face today is a spiritual one. At root, it is a test of moral will and faith. Now you can see why the editorialists at the New York Times and the Washington Post hated the speech, right? Gets worse for them, but better for us. Quoting, Whitaker Chambers the man whose own religious conversion made him a witness to one of the terrible traumas of our time, the Hiss Chambers case, wrote that the crisis of the Western world exists the degree in which the West is indifferent to God, the degree to which it collaborates in communism's attempt to make man stand alone without God. And then he said, for Marxism-Leninism is actually the second oldest faith, first proclaimed in the Garden of Eden with the words of temptation. Ye shall be as gods. The Western world, quoting Reagan now, the Western world can answer this challenge, but only provided that its faith in God and freedom he enjoys is as great as communism's faith in man. I believe we shall rise to this challenge, he concluded. I believe that communism is another sad, bizarre chapter in human history whose last pages are now being written, he said. I believe this because the source of our strength in the quest for human freedom is not material, but spiritual, he said, and because it knows no limitation. 
it must terrify and ultimately triumph over those who would enslave their fellow man. For in the words of Isaiah, he giveth power to the faint, and to them that have none might he increases strength. But they said, Wait upon the Lord, and that shall renew your strength. They shall mount up with wings as evil, uh, with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. Yes, change your world. One of our founding fathers, Thomas Paine, said, We have it within our power to begin the world over again. We can do it, doing together what no one church could do by itself. God bless you and thank you very much, is how he concluded that. You can see how they hated Ronald Reagan and why they hated him so much and why they're writing him out of the obituaries and epitaphs for the Soviet Union and Mikhail Gorbachev. I'll give you this one last piece from that speech in 1983, talking about the nuclear freeze proposals that I was mentioning earlier in my monologue when it came to unilateral disarmament on education that was analogous to the unilateral disarmament people like John Kerry and Joe Biden were trying to push on the United States in the 1970s and 1980s. Ronald Reagan said, In your discussions of the nuclear freeze proposals, I urge you to beware the temptation of pride the temptation of blithely declaring yourselves above it all and labeling both sides equally at fault, to ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding and thereby remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. He was speaking up on behalf of the West. You know, we're going to have to do a deep dive into what fascism means because Joe Biden has resurrected that word to apply it to his political opponents in America. I did some of this previously in the show. We can do more of it tomorrow if you want. But one of the defining points of fascism, as I mentioned, as Angelo Cotavilla, scholars on fascism like Angelo have put it, relativism and they spoke of it it's not something that was used to describe fascist italy benito mussolini spoke of relativism as the inherent and controlling ethos of the political ideology of fascism so if joe biden thinks he can graft fascism onto a movement and a party that actually believes in right and wrong when his is the party of there being no truths, of there being the idea that we can be as gods. Heck, we can even change human nature and sex, right? If he thinks he can graft that onto us, think about what that revision of history is. Think about what that revision of ethics is. Think about what that revision of political philosophy is taking place before our very eyes. Now, I don't, as I say, know what he's going to say tomorrow in his speech to heal the nation or his speech on the soul of the nation. But one thing I'll be looking for, one thing I'll be listening for tomorrow night is whether he'll speak about not just the soul of the nation, but the soul of a human being, which is, of course, where you get the notion of a soul of a nation. You can't speak of the soul of a nation without thinking about the import or getting the idea from the idea of a soul of the human being. The soul starts with a human being. Nations don't have souls before human beings have souls. Human beings have souls, and thus nations have souls. It'll be interesting to see 
if he's willing to talk about the souls of human beings. Of course, if he does so, one will have to think about what the import of a soul is and how it has an infinite existence answerable only to God. That'll be hard for Joe Biden to do. But then again, Joe Biden just makes set up as he goes along, doesn't he? I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. It means a ton to us that you would let us enter your cars, your living rooms, your bedrooms, your hearts, and your heads. I, um, I guess I would quote at the end of this show what Ronald Reagan said in that farewell address to the nation in 1989. It was the speech he thought was the most important message he wanted to communicate to the American people. And it's of a piece with everything we've talked about this hour, from my monologue and teaching to our history scores, to the weaponization of history, even to what we're beginning to unlearn with regard to the passing of Mikhail Gorbachev. For in that speech, he said, we've got to do a better job of getting across that America is freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of enterprise, and freedom is special and rare. It's fragile. It needs protection. So we've got to teach history based not on what's in fashion, but what's important. Why the pilgrims came here, who Jimmy Doolittle was, and what those 30 seconds over Tokyo meant. If we forget what we did, he said, we won't know who we are. I'm warning of an eradication of the American memory that could result ultimately in an erosion of the American spirit. Sounds almost exactly like what David McCullough said, doesn't it? Amnesia of a nation being as harmful as amnesia for a person. Interesting. Ronald Reagan would say that in 1989, knowing how he ended his last days himself. There are ironies in American history. That's a good book, too. Maybe we'll look at that tomorrow. Reinhold Niebuhr's Irony of American History. Boy. If our seniors could read that instead of the crud they're given today, we'd be a better nation. Read one Ronald Reagan speech. Read one Reinhold Niebuhr book. Read one good history book, and there are a lot of them. These wars over history are wars over much bigger things than that. They're wars over the soul and salvation of the West. Think about that as the school year begins. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebson. Class is dismissed.